0: welcome to another episode of HSJ's Health Check podcast. My name is Nicholas Carding and I'm a senior correspondent with HSJ and I'm standing in for Annabelle who is at HSJ's provider summit this week. It's been a very sobering week for the NHS. Uh, On Wednesday the long-awaited Ockenden report was published and its findings made for extremely grim reading Uh, Hundreds of babies died or were left brain damaged at Shrewsbury and Telford Hospital Trust after a catalogue of failures, which shows yet again that the NHS has failed to learn lessons from other safety scandals. This week also saw the publication of the annual NHS staff survey, which painted a rather negative picture of staff attitudes towards their job and employers. So here to discuss these very cheerful issues with me are Emily Townsend, who's our West Midlands correspondent, and Nick Tuno, uh, who's one of our workforce correspondents. So let's start with the Ockenden report, Emily. Um, I mean, you'd have to have sort of lived in a cave yesterday to avoid seeing the main headlines of what the report said. But can you just give us a very uh, brief overview of um, the main findings of the report, first of all?
1: Yes, yeah, so there were some horrendous numbers It's obviously important to remember that all of them individuals with their own stories and lives, however short and um, that essentially there was concerns about ineffective fetal monitoring and a culture of reluctance to perform cesarean sections. And Donna Oppenden found that that resulted in a total of 295 avoidable baby deaths or brain damage cases. There were also nine um, avoidable maternal maternal deaths. So, yeah, it was, it was really grim reading. One person who was interviewed for dons report described the maternity service as the Republic of Maternity, um, where often the maternity service seemed to consume its own smoke and didn't like having oversight by the corporate team. So understandably, there's a yeah, huge amount of learning here. Um, there's more than 60 local actions that Shrewsbury must implement. and Quite rightly, there's quite a lot of focus on improving kindness and compassion. There's a lot about families not being listened to there are also 15 immediate and essential actions for all maternity services in England including one about the continuity of carer model uh, which we've got a story about on our website this morning um, but clearly it's this must have huge repercussions for all trusts and particularly for Shrewsbury and Telford Trust every trust must have a patient safety specialist in maternity um, and there's something also about bereavement services but I think there's so much to learn from this and it shouldn't just be another never again
0: report. No exactly I mean with these sorts of scandals it's always such an easy question how could this happen and of course there's so many Different reasons why it does happen, but what you what what's your sort of takeaway? I suppose from the report in terms of answering that particular question, what seem to be the, the the strongest themes as to how this could have been allowed to happen?
1: I think for me, it's the key part of the, the regulatory side of things. And that, that was the main point that Donna raised that there were eight external bodies that checked on the trust maternity services over the years. And while their reports often you know indicated the need for governance improvements, it just didn't happen. Um, and you know Donna told us yesterday that the, the trust was of the belief that its maternity services were good. And she said at the press conference, you know, they were wrong. Um, she said it was astounding that for more than two decades the issues at shrewsbury were not challenged internally and um, but also that it wasn't held to account by external bodies and said that you know systemic changes needed um locally and nationally but i think that's the really big thing to look at is that how did this was a huge problem people were being failed over two decades and yet Lots of reports said they investigated and said, Oh, there's some staffing problems, but the overall picture was, oh, the services are good, they're they're functioning properly, but that was totally not the case. So I think there's a lot of questions to be answered by regulators and external bodies as to why they continue to allow this to happen over such a long time.
0: Did the um have the regulators sort of said, um, you know, what's their response to this? Have they kind of set out why they believed things were okay in Shrewsbury or how they've kind of addressed that, that discrepancy between what they thought was going on and what was actually going on?
1: so they haven't addressed as as far as i know they haven't addressed directly um the final lockdown report But there was and um, the cqc was interviewed for BBC's panorama um a couple of weeks ago about um you know about these subsequent reports and they were saying that their inspection program in recent years has been quite focused on going and actually speaking to staff on the ground as opposed to just having sort of false reassurances from board level, so they have gone down to the ground and and spoken to people about their experiences. And obviously Shrewsbury and Telford was, I think it was in 2016 that they were downgraded to requires improvement and now obviously they are inadequate. So there were some concerns and there was some enforcement action. Um, However, families believe that it's not enough and and Donna Ockenden believes that it's not enough. So obviously CQC is not the only regulator. there are a lot of other bodies, clinical commissioning groups that, you know, oversaw this happening and yeah, that there's a lot of questions to answer in, in the coming weeks, you know, we'll be speaking to ICS chiefs and, you know, also to the chief executive of the trust to, you know, talk about how this was allowed um, to continue Mm. and what happens going forward.
0: Yeah. Just to pick up on one thing you said earlier, which is one of those kind of lines in a report that would stand out to many people, when you said that the culture of the maternity department was—I think you said it was like—it was described as the republic of maternity. Um, what, what, what did the report actually sort of mean when it when it presented that? What, what did what was it trying to say about how the system was?
1: What they were saying is that there was uh, them and us style culture so um, between midwifery and the more senior clinicians so there was a lot of focus on on midwifery and obviously with a lot of the failures over the years there were a lot of concerns over the fact that consultants weren't at midwife led units and they weren't you know brought in when they should have been but there is clearly quite a gulf between the two departments and it isn't working and um, something isn't working there's lots of staffing issues as there is across the whole NHS but it does seem to be that in this particular trust there was a real and that this continues to be um you know a real sort of gap between midwifery and obstetricians and and consultants
0: yeah yeah it's- very troubling to hear that when you think that that is just one maternity department of what, 120 odd maternity departments across the country and it just makes you wonder how how common these kind of situations are elsewhere in the NHS as well. Um, you. Uh, Emily, you went to Shrewsbury uh, on Wednesday to, there was a sort of, I suppose for want of be the best word, like a sort of media day, if you like, where they presented the report in front of a lot of journalists, they had some of the family uh, there as well, the affected families. Could you tell us a bit about what that that was like, um, what the mood was like at that um, event, and were there anything, you know, that cropped up in the the interviews with people that you, you spoke to there? that perhaps hasn't been focused on so much um, sort of yesterday on, on Wednesday with the the main findings but were there any other you know particularly interesting bits from the that day um, that you you found when you were there?
1: Yeah so it was a really emotional um, and harrowing day um, you know the, the families were all there and to hear what Donna had to say um, but during that they're forced to relive that trauma over and over again and obviously speaking to the media as much as it helps to get the word out there is also very traumatic for them so obviously a lot of us were very acutely aware of that and um, so I was speaking to Sonia Lee whose daughter Catherine died in 2000 at just 21 minutes old and um, she was left in pain overnight clinicians took too long to decide about a c-section and and then used the wrong resuscitation equipment she said that she was made to feel that Catherine's death was her fault um, because she'd said that she'd wanted a natural birth. Um, and she was also saying to me that, you know, that trauma plus having to take on herself and fight for justice for her daughter has left her with um, you know PTSD, which went undiagnosed for years. She was saying to me, and this is something that I've had echoed um, from Rhiannon and Davies and, and Kaylee Griffiths as well, who lost their daughters, Kate and Pippa, um, at the Children's Health Trust, that they, the overriding thing for me is that they feel there needs to be an open and honest health authority where staff feel that they can speak up about problems without losing their jobs. Um there's a there's a lot of talk, particularly from Rhiannon and and Kaylee, about establishing an independent whistleblowing function that sits outside trusts and really does give people a safe space to speak out. And I think that's a really important thing considering um, some of the sort of lesser. There has been coverage of it but it's been the headline figures have obviously understandably kind of almost you know perhaps it's been overlooked in in a little bit of a way but it's
0: can i just just check um when you talk about they're sort of calling for an independent body through which staff can raise concerns so they are they saying that the freedom to speak up um isn't isn't working or you know because there are obviously already ways in which the nhs staff can um raise concerns supposedly without fear of of repercussions but is it their view that that's it's not enough at the moment then that existing channels aren't working at the moment
1: yeah so according to Donna's report there there are still staff that feel unable to speak up through the official channels so she was telling us that in the days before publication several people who had given testimony and you know to the inquiry had pulled out through fear of losing their jobs um, there was you know descriptions of the labor wards in very recent weeks as being like a clique with a, a culture of undermining and bullying um and I believe that if it's just you know if it's still going on as recently as you know almost a few days ago because Donna was saying that they had to make a lot of tweaks because people were sort of dropping out one by one. Um, there's also a bit of concern about a, a briefing that's quoted in the report which it was sent out to staff. Um, and it seems that this briefing has has put some people off and um, speaking up, which is quite worrying. and um, It's not really a good look for a trust that's under so much kind of scrutiny and fire to not, you know, that there's a chance here to kind of come out and say, look, we were wrong, and and for staff to to be able to feel like they can speak up about it, not to just kind of bury your head in the sand. And it does seem a little odd and um, to put a briefing out to say to staff. Uh, we don't know what that briefing says, we're, we're going to be looking into that in a little bit more detail, um, but it is worrying to see that a trust that is under so much scrutiny and it has had this, you know, awful report written about it to still have staff speaking up problems and um, mm. and, you know, that's something that the families are very keen to, you know, that they've spoken to advice over the years and they have. Established that they had wanted to speak out, but they didn't feel they had a safe space to. Um, so yeah, there's also uh, when I was speaking to so Richard Stanton has you know spoken to various people yesterday, and um, he is the the father of Kate Stanton Davies and um, Rhiannon's daughter. Um, they're the two women that kind of started this inquiry and called for it in the first place. He was saying that, you know, this is a watershed moment for the NHS. There are other inquiries going on in uh, East Kent and Nottingham that they're yet to report. Um, however, I think there's also concern about the fact that there was a almost like a revolving door of management at the top. Mm-hmm. We had a, a piece running on our website shortly after the report came out saying that, you know, there were 10 chief executives and 10 chairs over those two decades and. There are real questions um, as to why that happened and also as to whether the current management um, is able to kind of deliver these improvements, because if there are still concerns about speaking up in the organisation right now and um, mm. we're going to hopefully once we can speak to Louise, we were supposed to, we were supposed to speak to her on Wednesday, but well, we were told we were unable to do so. Um,
0: we'll Louise be... Barnett, the CEO? Yeah,
1: Louise Barnett, the CEO. Yeah, um, we're hoping to speak to her in the coming days. We did ask for an interview on the day, but we were told at the last minute we couldn't do it. But yeah. there are real questions about it as to why there are still these issues right up to the wire. Um,
0: Was she not I at, the, at the, bre- the press day then, Louise Barnett? No, so
1: nobody made any statement from childrens and Health trust yesterday um at the press conference they did send out a a statement um and you know they were saying that it was a deeply distressing report and that they were very sorry for the failings um and there was an interview that she gave to the BBC where she clarified why she wasn't going to meet with the families and that was the question that they had wanted asked and she said she felt yesterday was a day for the families and for Donna's report and she didn't feel that it was appropriate for the trust to, to meet with them on that day however it, it is a bit
0: <laughs> it seems a bit strange when it, I mean it's sort of a chance for, for her and the trust to 'cause none this hasn't happened really on her watch so much, has it? She's relatively I think if I'm right saying she joined was it last year or two years yeah, ago? Yeah, yeah, so,
1: relatively recently. And and yeah. but she has stayed quite quiet. that Donna did say that there has been some improvements seen in maternity over the last couple of years. And mm-hmm. um, so that was something that was positive. However, the concerning thing Is that if there is still this culture of feeling that they cannot speak up, particularly, you know, with staff in midwifery, then Mm -hmm. that's a question that needs to be asked of of Louise as to Mm -hmm. what she's doing about that. And I think that's why we're very keen to, to speak to her. So hopefully that will happen in the next couple of days. But.
0: Yes, yeah. absolutely. From, um, just to change the subject slightly away from Ockenden, um, Emily, you've also reported on another ongoing inquiry into potential avoidable patient deaths, which has happened in, in Essex. Could you just um, bring us up to speed there? And do you think there are any parallels between what's happening in Essex and what's been going on in Shrewsbury?
1: Yeah, so earlier this week we reported how an inquiry into mental health deaths in Essex was aware of 1500 deaths. And that was a really big jump um, from 25 deaths that were officially probed by police in 2018. So what's different about this inquiry, um, Ockendon was supported by the majority of families and obviously it was it was fought for by the families. Um, However, this inquiry in Essex is not supported by you know several dozen families it's non statutory and that's a really key problem and um, for the families involved witnesses can't be compelled to give evidence under oath and it means that staff will be invited to speak about what's happened as opposed to being compelled to speak about it the families led by Melanie Leahy whose son Matthew died at the Linden Centre in Chelmsford um, have been fighting for a statutory inquiry and a lot of them aren't engaging um, with the one that's led by um, Geraldine Strafty who's the former National Clinical Director for Mental Health and they will not engage until it gets those powers so so far only 14 families are engaged and I feel like that's really troublesome for the inquiry because It's unlikely to be successful unless it gets those, if it's examining 1500 deaths, which are from death records um, over the the past 21 years. So it's from 2000 to the end of 2020 and it's got 14 families, which is good. There's been some emerging themes um, about physical and sexual safety on wards. So they have established some early findings, but I think that it's going to be difficult for them to get it to be successful without yeah. the majority of the families engaging.
0: Just, just very lastly what's the reason for that inquiry being non-statutory and you know compared to the Ockenden inquiry which kind of got all the resources it needed and seemed to be well supported What, why is this different when you're still talking about a lot of deaths that are being looked into and it's over broadly the same time period isn't it 20 years or so?
1: Yeah so but I think with with Ockenden it's there are concerns about leadership and their answerability, I guess. So um, being held accountable. But I, I do believe that because this has been brought because often has been brought by the families and it, it did have that support from the start. And um, I think that's the that's the key difference here, that they are both independent inquiries or that they're calling themselves independent inquiries um, and and. As far as I know, Ockhamdon is not statutory either, um, but it is one of those situations where um, you have a group of families that, in this instance in Essex, you've had a corporate manslaughter probe um, that was dropped, but you also had a, a quite a big prosecution last year when £1.5 million um, pounds fine to North Essex Partnership, the former North Essex Partnership um, over health and safety failing. So you've got investigations, previous investigations that have found fault and they feel very, very strongly. The families feel that there should be former chief executives, retired NHS executives that should be called to the stand and compelled to give evidence. Otherwise, they won't. And I think that's the really strong feeling here that they feel that they should be made to answer Um, otherwise they won't engage and nothing will come from it. Mm.
0: of a watch this space as well with with the Essex inquiry but I mean it's um it's just a bit depressing when we hear every time there is this kind of you know Ockenden level report and they say it's the watershed moment and then hey ho there are suddenly more inquiries emerging in other places and you just sort of worry that the the circle is being repeated. Um, But we'll move on um, and I'd like to bring in Nick at this point because Nick you've been following the NHS staff survey um, which came out I think on the same day day as Ockenden came out on Wednesday, it was a busy news day uh, for HSJ. So you've been uh, looking at the survey, all of the figures and spreadsheets that come with it, can you tell us what the the good news is and what the bad news is and what is there more of good or bad
2: yeah so as you say the the latest nhs staff survey was published at nine thirty uh, yesterday morning and it provided sort of an insight into the health service and that continues to feel under pressure and under strain obviously with everything going on with covid the usual winter pressures that have come Alongside the general running of of such a, a large system, uh, the survey was conducted between September and December of 2021, and approximately 650,000 responses were collected um, from the 1.3 million people who were invited to take part. Um, at this time, between September and December, obviously the, the daily COVID hospitalizations were. Hovering around seven to eight thousand, maybe creeping up to uh, ten thousand at times. And as I said previously, the usual winter pressures will have come around that time. So there's a concoction of that that plays into the sort of context of what was being answered and and how staff felt at the time. Um, I mean, there's never really a good time to ask uh, staff uh, b- one of the busiest health services in the world and and you know conduct one of the largest workforce surveys in the world. And the global pandemic doesn't help that. But uh, that aside, the results were quite bleak. Um, and you can see that from the indicators on mo- motivation and morale. Most of them had regressed in some consecutive years and others to three, four, maybe even five year lows. For example, the percentage of staff that said that they could meet their conflicting demands on time at work. It steadily improved between twenty seventeen and twenty twenty, but it regressed to just forty three point two percent in the latest results. And of course the coronavirus pandemic would have had a significant effect on that. But it's stuck it paints a stark picture nonetheless. It's not it's not particularly good to see it gradually rise and make steady improvements and then to suddenly plummet. Um with with COVID uh, having played sort of a large factor in that. Um, that was just one of them, but there are others. For instance, it was notable as well, the proportion of staff that reported ha- having experienced musculoskeletal problems during work activities during the past 12 months and those that felt unwell due to work-related stress and even those who had gone into work despite not feeling well enough to perform their duties. Now for the first two of those three, those are the increase in percentage for the last four consecutive years but the last, well, the last one declined sharply between 2019-20 but shot up massively in 2021 uh, and when you look at some of the new uh, questions I've introduced this year. We got a glimpse into burnout. Now, burnout is something that has been a concern for leaders throughout the pandemic. Obviously, with the pressure brought on with COVID and working in a in a health service that already struggles with workforce pressures and and pressure on beds and A&E and so on, It's it was interesting to look at this uh, and what the results were. And obviously, Parliament also came up with their report into workforce burnout last June and the survey found that 46.5% of staff who answered this question felt worn out to the end of the working day or shift, 39.4% said that their work frustrates them and another 34.3% said they felt burnt out because of their work. On that final question actually the survey produced a chart which gave a breakdown by occupation and more than half of those who answered were operational ambulance staff Followed by registered nurses and midwives at 40.5%, and then nursing and healthcare assistants at 38%. Medical and dental staff made up a little over 33%, and what the wider survey called wider healthcare team, quote unquote, comprised about 25%. So that kind of gives the general gist of sort of the workforce pressures that staff are facing and what they feel that they're facing but also some of the physical kind of ailments that they've also been reporting such as musculoskeletal problems and so on. But if we go to the main findings, one of the most notable ones was the proportion of staff that said that there were not enough staff within their own organisations to do their job properly. So that was at 38.4% in 2020, but it dropped to 27.2% in 2021. That's an 11 percentage points decline with the biggest slump seeing in the ambulance sector. And if you look among ambulance trust staff, it fell from 36.7% to 20.3% the following year. The the one that stood out was a proportion of staff that would recommend their Organization as a place to work. So that was sixty-six point eight percent in twenty twenty, but it declined to fifty-nine point four percent the following year. So, mm. I, I mean, if I'm to look at it, obviously the the pandemic has had a has had a significant impact, and it will have obviously been borne out in the results as to you know motivation and morale. But the decline in how the proportion of of staff that would recommend their organization as a place to work is quite interesting. Um, because obviously different experiences will have influenced um, the way that people would have answered. Um, Some organisations would have had staff who would, you know, obviously gone through quite significant challenges and therefore that would have made their uh, answer reflect differently. Others would have been an organisation that they felt actually went above and beyond and, and did fantastically well. But to see that decline is quite interesting. Just the last question, because we're always out of time.
0: Um, but as you say, it overall paints a rather bleak picture. What's the response been f- uh, to the staff survey by the sort of relevant bodies, if you can sort summarise
2: them, uh, in the sort of a minute or two minutes? What the main mm. response? Been? Yeah. So I think everyone acknowledges the picture looks bad, but it's about what happens next. So Chris Graham is the chief executive of the charity Picker, which coordinated a survey on behalf of NHS England, and they said that these results were deeply alarming and this demonstrated the health and service, health service workforce has growing concerns about their working conditions and he highlighted um, that 11% drop in people who felt that there were not enough staff in their organisations to do their jobs properly. Tim Gardner, the senior policy fellow at the Health Foundation, said that this was the signal needed for MPs to vote on that amendment that I just talked about and that would have required the Secretary of State to publish independently verified assessments of past and future workforce needs but as we now know That was voted down in the same evening of the staff survey, and obviously to much disappointment. And then finally, the Unison's head of health, Sarah Sarah Gordon, hit on the issue of pay, uh, saying that waiting lists will only reduce if staff in their jobs and the people that join the health workforce um, are are basically paid what they feel they should be paid. And it's obviously declined in the staff survey. And she thinks that like swift action on pain and urgent retention package is required. Now, NHS England will obviously point to the additional support that is given to staff during the pandemic, like the 27, 24-7 support line, access to mental health hubs, increase on flexible working, but it comes down still to what's next. Now that we know that the staff survey has come out, again, it's, it's showed some bleak results as, as we've discussed, but it's the, it's the follow-on yes, from it- now that we want to we need to see brilliant
0: okay thank you very much for that Nick uh very comprehensive summary and as you say very kind of sobering picture overall and lots more we could have discussed but we are out of time so um thank you very much both nick and emily um for coming on the podcast to talk about these issues um hjs health check podcast is available on all the main podcast streaming websites and um, please feel free to get in touch with your suggestions for what we should talk about by emailing at annabel.collins@wilmingtonhealthcare.com thanks very much for listening and we'll be back next week